0: Listen, you cannot get into Jesus' kingdom by your own righteousness. Not going to be good enough for God. You will never, ever be good enough for God. You only can get into Jesus' kingdom if you have someone else's righteousness that meets that standard, and that's Jesus' righteousness.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Have you attached yourself to the teachings of Jesus over His person and work? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part nine of his current series, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Last time we began studying verses 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 5, where we learned another response toward the Scripture that characterizes all true believers. Believers must accept Jesus Christ's diagnosis of their spiritual condition by way of His Word, the Scripture. In these two verses, Christ diagnoses the spiritual condition of three different categories of people, And in each case, the only tool he uses to perform that diagnosis is their relationship to the Scripture. What does it mean to have an authentic and accurate relationship to Scripture? Let's find out as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. And let me read for you again this section, beginning in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus says to us, "'Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished.'" Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." According to our Lord in this paragraph, there is one simple tool that can accurately diagnose your spiritual condition, and that tool is the Scripture. A true subject of Jesus' spiritual kingdom will always have a right relationship to the Scripture. A true Christian always rightly responds to the Bible. Jesus, as we've learned in this passage, identifies really three responses to Scripture that should characterize every true believer. If you're a believer, these should characterize your life. First of all, you should understand Jesus' relationship to the Scripture. We've already looked at this in detail. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and catch up with us. But in verse 17, Jesus says, I want you to understand how I relate to the Scripture. And of course, at that time, it was just what we call the Old Testament, the 39 books of our Old Testament. That was the content Jesus is talking about. And He says, I didn't come to abolish that, but I came to fulfill it. That is, he, He came to explain the Old Testament, and it's true and full meaning to us in His teaching. He came to fulfill it in the sense of obeying it, keeping it in a way that no one ever had perfectly in his life. And he also came to fulfill it in the sense that he embodied everything to which it pointed in his person. He fulfilled it in the fullest possible sense. Secondly, if we're going to respond correctly to Christ and to the Scripture, we must believe Jesus' view of the Scripture Not only do we have to understand that he didn't come to to do away with the Scripture, he came instead to fulfill it. And we have to understand what he believed to be true about the Scripture. And in verse 18, he lays that down in just one monumental verse. And again, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and and catch up with us. But basically, in this one verse, Jesus explains to us that He believed several enduring attributes of the Scripture. He He believed in its permanent authority until heaven and earth pass away, it stands. He believed in its verbal inspiration down to the words, even the letters, even the smallest strokes of letters, breathed out by God. He believed in its plenary inspiration. That is, it was all breathed out by God. He says, until all is accomplished. It's complete inerrancy. Jesus, in that statement in verse 18, makes it clear that He believes everything in the Scripture, down to the letter and the smallest stroke, was true and would be fulfilled. And then it's careful preservation because he was talking about documents that weren't in existence anymore in the first century. The original autographs on which Moses and the prophets wrote weren't still available. He's talking about a document that was, a, that was carefully copied, and in the cases of Septuagint, translated, and he still called it the Scriptures, implying that God had preserved His Word, not inerrant in the copies, only in the originals, but the essence of His Word, captured and preserved for generations to come. That's what Jesus believed. And if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to believe that about the Scripture as well, because He did. Now, last week we began studying verses 19 and 20, where we learned the third response toward the Scripture that characterizes all true believers. We must accept Jesus' diagnosis with the Scripture. Jesus, in these two verses, verses 19 and 20, diagnoses the spiritual condition of three different categories of people. And in each case, the only tool that he uses to make that diagnosis is their relationship to the Scripture. Now, we called the first category of people that Jesus describes here the dishonorable disciple. This is a person who is in the kingdom who will enter the kingdom of heaven who will does belong to Jesus today and will be with Jesus in the future and yet he is not worthy of honor. Why? Look at verse 19, the first half. Whoever then annuls, the word means to disregard, to downplay, to minimize, to ignore. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, that is, the least significant portion of the Old Testament Scriptures, without my direct authorization, and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I will designate the person who minimizes and downplays even one portion of the Scripture without my authorization, least in my kingdom. That's a a sobering thought. The second category of people that Jesus identifies here, we we call the honorable disciple. This person is in the kingdom and worthy of honor. Look at the second half of verse 19. But whoever keeps, the Greek word is does, literally, whoever does and teaches all the Old Testament scriptures, except the ones that I specifically authorize you to set set aside, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That person who maximizes, who exalts the Scripture, Jesus says, that person I will say is great. Now today, Jesus uses the Scripture to diagnose one other category of people. Now, we meet this third kind of person who also, by the way, claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or at least attached to Jesus in some way, in verse 20. Let's call this third category the false disciple, a person who is not in the kingdom at all. Now, it's important to note as we begin that... Jesus does not address verse 20 to the scribes and Pharisees. He had plenty to say to them, but he's not talking to them in verse 20. Nor is verse 20 about the scribes and Pharisees. They serve merely as a teaching point to the crowd that is gathered around Jesus that day. Jesus is addressing people who have in some way attached themselves to him, at least for that day of teaching when he taught this sermon there on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, according to Luke 6, who's present? We studied this when we first began, but Luke 6 tells us, right around Jesus were the twelve apostles. He had just appointed them earlier that morning to be his official representatives. Outside of the twelve apostles, around them, was another group of those who claimed to be Jesus' disciples, his followers, just as we do here today, many of us. And then beyond them, there was a large crowd, who had come even from surrounding countries. They'd brought their relatives to be healed, or perhaps they'd come to be healed and to hear Jesus' teaching. These were supremely interested people who had expended a great deal of effort and energy to be there to listen to Jesus. Now, in verse 19, Jesus described two groups of people in that crowd who belonged to his spiritual kingdom. But in verse 20, he tells us about a third group, and he tells us this third group will not enter his kingdom. Now that is a remarkable diagnosis by our Lord, because all the people who were listening to him that day, they had already manifested some genuine spiritual interest, just as you have to some degree by being here this morning. They had traveled, in some cases, great distances to see and hear Jesus. Some of them, according to Luke 6, had already experienced miraculous healing. They had had an amazing experience with Jesus. But in spite of their genuine interest in Jesus, and in spite of their willingness to hear Jesus teach, and in spite of their claim to be His followers, Jesus said that there were some present there that day who in reality were not part of, of him. They were not, in reality, his disciples. Jesus is diagnosing the person who claims some connection to Christ, but proves in the end not to be a true disciple at all. This person may or may not believe that he or she has a relationship with Christ, but Jesus, by his own diagnosis, says they don't. Now, look at verse 20. Notice the the flow of the sentence and the structure of the sentence. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The sentence begins with the word for. That connects it to the paragraph we've been studying. This is not a new topic. Instead, Jesus is still dealing with how a person responds to the Scripture, reveals his true spiritual condition. Here in verse 20... Jesus says your response to the Scripture not only indicates whether you will be least or greatest in the kingdom, but whether or not you're in the kingdom at all. Your response to the Scripture tells you and tells Christ whether or not you really belong to Him. Again, He introduces this statement in an emphatic way. For I say to you... That's Jesus' way of saying, listen up, here is a solemn, serious announcement of a spiritual truth. Now, notice the structure. He begins with a dependent clause, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and then comes the main part of the sentence, the main clause, the independent clause, which is really the heart of Jesus' statement. So let's start with that independent clause, the second half of verse 20. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The word you is plural. It's addressed to those listening to his sermon that day, and all of those who in the future would read or study this sermon as you and I are doing today. Jesus is talking to us just as surely as he was talking to them. He says to us, there are people here this morning who, who minimize the Scripture, downplay the Scripture, but are really in my kingdom. There are those who maximize and exalt the Scripture in their lives. They are in my kingdom as well and worthy of honor. And he says, there are also those here this morning, as there were there that morning, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Some who've attached to Jesus, both then and now, who will not enter. Now, what's interesting about this sentence in Greek Is It is appropriate and legitimate, grammatically speaking, in Greek, if you wanted to make something emphatic, to put a double negative. You can't do that in English. Those of you who have some recollection of your schooling, you understand you can't do that. It's not legitimate, but it was in Greek. And Jesus does that here. Jesus says, if I could paraphrase it, he's essentially saying, for some of you listening to me, there is absolutely no way you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as I noted for you last time, so far in this sermon, Jesus has referred to the kingdom as the current spiritual kingdom. The group of people over whose hearts He rules right now. If you have acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you are in His spiritual kingdom today. He reigns and rules over your heart and over every heart that has so acknowledged Him. But here in verses 19 and 20, Jesus looks ahead to a future physical manifestation of the kingdom. When he physically reigns, now understand those two aspects of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom over which he reigns today and the future physical kingdom, those are intimately related and cannot be ultimately separated from each other. Because to enter Jesus' future physical kingdom, you already have to belong to his spiritual kingdom. That is, you must have acknowledged Jesus as your rightful Lord and King. And you must demonstrate the reality of that faith in Christ by submitting to his authority every day. So let me summarize the main clause of verse 20. Listen carefully. This is what Jesus says. He says, listen, there are some of you who have attached yourselves to me today who do not belong to my spiritual kingdom now, and you absolutely will not enter my physical kingdom in the future. In fact, taken by itself, the main clause of verse 20 says, no one hearing Jesus will enter his kingdom, period. But the dependent clause tells us there is one exception. In other words, no one hearing my message this morning will enter Jesus' future physical kingdom unless unless you meet the condition that Jesus establishes in verse 20. Jesus says, let me tell you who are going to get in. Look again at verse 20. For I say to you, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Do you understand how crucial this is? Jesus is making a very solemn pronouncement here. You think you're a Christian? You think you're going to heaven? Jesus says, let me tell you whether or not you are. It all comes down to this. Does your righteousness surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? That's what Jesus says. You're not getting in, I'm not getting in, unless we meet this condition. So we better understand what this condition is. Who were the scribes and Pharisees? Well, the scribes were the official caretakers of the Scripture. They are the ones who made sure that the scrolls on which the Scripture was actually written were carefully copied generation after generation, and preserved, and stored, and guarded, and protected. They're also the ones who were its greatest students. They were the ones who were its most respected interpreters and teachers. They were the experts in the the Scripture. This was their occupation, their vocation, what they did for a living, The term Pharisees doesn't describe a profession or a a vocation, but rather a theological position. Many of the scribes were also Pharisees. That is, they held to the theological position that the Pharisees stood for, which was one of conservatism. They took the Old Testament Scriptures literally, all of them. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees accepted it all. Most of the Pharisees were not scribes, however. That's why they're always differentiated. Most of the Pharisees were laymen, theological conservatives, serious about God, serious about their heritage, serious about the Scriptures. Now, because we have Jesus' assessment of this group on the pages of the Gospels, we already don't think much of their righteousness, do we? In fact, There are a lot of things you don't mind being called in today's world, but you don't want anybody to say you're what? A Pharisee. It's not a good thing. Why? Because of Jesus' assessment. But understand this. If you had been in the crowd that day, I can promise you that you would have been shocked by Jesus' statement. Because the scribes and Pharisees were considered in the first century to be the most holy and righteous people alive In fact, the Jews had a saying in that time that if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. But Jesus here just cuts across all of that. And in one brief statement, he says that the scribes and Pharisees as a whole, there would be some exceptions, but as a whole, they're not going to enter my kingdom. In fact, keep your finger there and turn over to Matthew 23, verse 13. On Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus gets even more pointed. Matthew 23:13. And you can keep your finger here as well. We're going to go back and forth between this and chapter 5. But notice Matthew 23:13, "But woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You're like an obstacle to keep them from entering, for you do not enter in yourselves" nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're not in, and you keep others from going in. Look down at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Jesus says, listen, the scribes and Pharisees are not in the kingdom and are destined for hell. Now, go back to chapter 5. Because in Matthew 5, and verse 20, Jesus says something more than that the scribes and Pharisees aren't getting in themselves. He says that you're not getting in, and I'm not getting in unless our righteousness surpasses theirs our righteousness has to be greater than theirs. So that raises the really important question is, so what was their righteousness and what was wrong with it? If you had seen a scribe or Pharisee in the first century, you would have witnessed a remarkable display of external righteousness. According to the New Testament, let me, just, let me just take you through, and in my notes I have Scripture references written next to these, but I'm not going to take you through all the references. Let me just give you a description according to the New Testament of these guys. They loved the Scriptures. They read and studied it every day. They prayed often, and they prayed for long periods of time. They fasted often. In fact, many of them fasted two days every week. They gave 10% of everything they possessed to God, even their garden herbs, everything. They didn't hold back anything. They were very careful to observe all of the ceremonies that were a part of their tradition. Some of them prescribed in the Old Testament. Others of them, part of their tradition, like the washing of hands before a meal, not for cleanliness, but for ceremonial purposes. They led exemplary moral lives. You almost never heard of one of the Pharisees being guilty of taking God's name in vain or of failing to keep the Sabbath or of stealing or of committing adultery. They were fervent, faithful evangelists constantly trying to convince Gentiles to come and worship not the pagan idols that they had been raised with, but the one true and living God. They fastidiously tried to obey the Scriptures. They attempted to keep all 613 commands that they had found in the Old Testament law. 248 positive ones and 365 negative ones. According to Acts 23, they even lived in anticipation of the resurrection. Listen, these guys were exemplary. By every obvious external standard, they appeared to be genuinely righteous. Not one of us externally could have stood up next to these guys and have appeared more righteous than they were.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was Part 9 of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Tom will have the concluding Part 10 for us next time, and we would love it if you join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, Exalting God's Glory